done now. Okay, six forty-five. Now, can we yeah. do. We should do a little longer than that, can't we? Well, goodbye. Let's just start, and we'll we'll make John. We'll probably All do right. an hour anyway. Okay. Welcome back. It's episode 139 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast. Coming to you, as we always do, from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, which we were planning on using as a polling location until John pointed out that it would disrupt Taco Tuesday. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy who's making himself available for a cabinet appointment regardless of who wins. And I am joined, as always, by the Venkman and Spengler of the conservative legal movement, They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch, Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. And fellas, since we last got together, just quick review, the president got covid Water was found on the moon. Uh, there will be headings going on in France. There's rioting and looting in Philadelphia, or as the locals call it, Thursday. The Pope's cool with civil unions now. Uh, the Hunter Biden scandal has come out, and the New York Post got locked out of Twitter as a result. There was a kidnapping plot against the governor of Michigan. California's on fire again. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett's on the Supreme Court. So doing a monthly show in the Trump era is like doing a yearly show at any other time in history. But one piece of news, of course, triumphs over them all because this is history in the making. Gentlemen, I went back and reviewed the tape from March. All three of us picked the Los Angeles Dodgers to win the World Series. Wow. For the first time in a decade, we kind of sort of knew what we were doing. Wow. Well, that's because we're a part of a new unity program. <laughs> did you did you go to Vegas and put money down for us? You didn't. I did not. You, you would not have wanted me to do that based on the, you, especially John, who picked them to triumph over the Los Angeles Angels. Well, all 50 percent. That's not bad. <laughs> wow. I am so and impressed with our I, I, I picked the Yankees, the Yankees right? Yep. Well, and so I came within a, an a hair's breadth of getting well, it after right, a right? fashion. Did after a fashion, even make the is... playoffs. I don't think. Yes, so. they did. Yes, well, first round they lost. They, in the they, first they round. lost to the. So anyway, closest we're ever going to get. So probably time to retire the World Series picks. But there is a ton for us to talk about. So let me just jump in. I want to start with the whole Amy Coney Barrett story because when we recorded the last show. Uh, she hadn't even been nominated yet. Although everyone felt pretty sure that she was going to be the nominee, but it wasn't official. And it turns out that the argument over the confirmation process turned out to be a lot more electric than the confirmation process itself because she was very poised and also very cautious. No one really landed a blow. The senators on the Judiciary Committee were mostly, as you'd expect, just playing for the camera. So the really important thing here is probably what it means for the future And, John, a lot of Democrats during this process went whole hog on the court packing argument. And this included this incredible attempt to defang that term. In one weekend, all of a sudden, Democratic politicians and a bunch of people in the press started saying, well, keeping Merrick Garland off the court was court packing. Stacking the appellate courts with all these nominees was court packing. But interestingly, Joe Biden, who just consistently bobbled this issue, was evasive. 
came out and said, well, I'm going to appoint a commission to look into this. So let's just assume, arguendo, that the, the polls are right, that Joe Biden wins next week, the Democrats take back the Senate. John, based on what we've seen thus far, how anxious should conservatives be about the prospect of the court getting expanded? I think they should be worried. Uh, I think the only person who's going to try to stop it from happening on that side of the aisle is going to be the president, Joe Biden. Uh, Every single other nominee for the Democratic presidential contest agreed to pack the court, including the who will be the vice president, including the major leaders of the Democratic Party in the Senate, such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. They all agreed uh, during the nomination fight to pack the court. And by pack the court, they mean expand the size of the court to 15 uh, people. So I, I would I think conservatives ought to be very worried about it. I, I know there are some I, I hope maybe there's one or two Democrats who in the Senate who would refuse to go along, um, mostly because I think they would refuse to go along with repealing the filibuster, which they would need to do before they could get to that legislation. Uh, and getting rid of the filibuster has even more profound effects possibly than packing the court. But I got to think even if they got rid of the filibuster, there might be a few uh, moderates left in the Senate, like a Joe Manchin, uh, maybe even a Dianne Feinstein. I mean, that's how worried I would be is that I would call her the moderate in all this. Um, so, <laughs> you know, some of the senators who I would, the Democrats, I think, would would understand that, the, you know, you're getting rid of one of the guide rails on just pure majoritarianism. But gosh, I think the Democratic Party is really being pushed by the progressive wing. And if we're putting our hopes in the idea that's Joe Biden who's going to save us from it, I'm not sure that that, you know, that that dam's not going to burst after a few months into the Biden administration. Richard, anyone who spent any time in D.C. or follows politics at all hears we're going to have a blue ribbon commission and thinks to themselves, okay, this is dead, right? right? Commissions are where initiatives go to die. But that's exactly but my I'm sentiment. I'm curious. Let, let's imagine that a good faith effort was made here and they want diverse voices in this group. And Richard Epstein <laughs> is, really? asked to, is asked to weigh in on what, what changes might be conducive oh. to a better functioning federal judiciary. What would your recommendations be? Okay, well, let's just first start with the first thing. My view is that the polls indicate that the country is something like three or four to one against the packing. And so I think even progressive Democrats are not so crazy to realize that if they try to put this thing forward, it will have very dramatic and negative consequences for them on their ability to get the rest of their program through and to hold either the House or the Senate or both come 2022. So I think, in fact, it probably is dead. Uh, Even if somebody as uninformed as Kamala Harris becomes president because Biden is unable to serve. Uh, What changes would I make um, with respect to uh, the appellate courts? I probably would not make any. There are sufficiently large number of judges and enough alteration uh, that these things could be done. The reason why Trump had such a free feel is that Obama always thought that the judiciary was not all that important. And I think he left about 135 or 138 seats empty by the time he left office. Um, If the Democrats are going to regain the Congress, my guess is that uh, McConnell will fill every empty seat he has right now and go up to January 2nd in order to do it because of the difference in priority. The single most important change that I think needs to be made is to impose term limits on the Supreme Court. This is something that I've been 
been in favor of for a very long period of time. Uh, what happens is it's too long. Uh, not only do you have the senility problem, people serving into their late 80s and so forth and really having been past their peak, but it also means that you're now fighting over 35 years of a potential justice rather than fighting over 18 years, which would I think to be the appropriate term. You'd have to stagger it in. Uh, you would have to deal with cases in which somebody resigns prematurely and throws the cycle off. And one proposal has been to say you take the last judge who's been forced out under the 18 rule and put him into or her in to finish the rest of the term. That's kind of tricky because it could easily change a uh, majority that's from conservative to liberal, liberal conservative. Somebody has to work all that stuff out. But every other country in the in the world has something like this. And serving for good behavior is, I think, a mistake. For the lower courts, I would not do anything. Um, I think that the system works pretty well. I think most of the judges are pretty conscientious. There is an enormous political difference between the two sides. And I think in terms of his appointment, the single greatest surprise that most uh, sort of constitutional conservatives had about um, Trump is they thought that he would politicize the entire operation, and he's done exactly the opposite. The position that the uh, Republicans have taken, uh, in part through the influence of somebody like Leonard Leo, is the only people who won't turn are those people who have some degree of intellectual convictions. And you start thinking back to all the Republican appointments who became Democrats, and you could see that they have it. So it's a very strong group in terms of its intellectual quality, indeed much stronger than the Obama group, which tends to be people in local communities who have been politically connected getting these plum judgeships. And I think the intellectual caliber, if you start looking at the systematic numbers, uh, obviously with exceptions, is going to be somewhat lower. So that's what I would do. I think if Biden did that, he could get bipartisan support for it, and he would be able to walk back from a dangerous ledge. If he tries to push forward with this thing, my guess is that it will fail, and there'll be a huge public outcry against it coming from large numbers of people that we don't know what the world is going to look like with 15 people on the Supreme Court, but we know if you're ramming through six new judges, all of the same ideological predilection on one day or on one week and so forth, that this is the sign of a banana republic. And, and I don't think people will stand for it. John, it's sort of been lost in the midst of all of this. But, you know, one of the major innovations of the Trump campaign last time around was releasing a list of potential Supreme Court nominees. And he updated it this time. Joe Biden has not done that. And I would assume that Biden will get at least one shot at the court because I'm operating on the supposition that Justice Breyer, who's 82 and has been on the court for 26 years, is going to retire at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, what's your view on this? Should these lists become a standard feature of presidential campaigns? And, and what would you expect the Biden nominee to look like? Uh, sorry, I was just thinking about what it would be like to put Richard on that committee with all those Biden appointments. I, I could imagine a better thing we could do to grind the Biden administration to a dead halt would be putting Richard on there. Oh, no, and they should expand its jurisdiction beyond reform of the courts to reform of of the whole executive branch. I mean, after that, Biden might actually, if Kamala Harris wasn't pushing him out the door, he might leave voluntarily anyway. <laughs> what a great, what a great, what, how, how devious you are, Mr. Senek. Devious. That's what I'm here for. Well, it's also, I mean, it's a really important point. This is obvious. If he puts together a stacked no, commission, which only has progressive gonna, on it, he's, he's finished. He's not going to obey any so Either it will be stacked or he's just not going to listen to it. He's just going to. Have it study and then well, we gonna, know that, but it's going to take people six. in Congress. No, I don't put believe the plan you don't. Forward, not some fighting. I, I, you think it's a? I, oh. 
If he makes it a loaded commission, he's finished. If he makes it a fair commission, it's six months. The passion will go out. Nah. One of the things is – he's, he's just saying um, commission I, I, until he can get past the election. And then he, when he wins the election, he's going to just go ahead and do what he wants to anyway. He doesn't believe in a commission. You are more real politic than even I am, and I thought <laughs> I would get, had a PhD in political <laughs> cynicism, but I guess it turns out that I fought my oral examination. <laughs> but yeah. – <laughs> <laughs> but like the, the, let me answer Troy's question. So we know what Biden's going to do. He's already said that he's going to pick a black woman for the Supreme Court. So he is already, uh, without giving out a shortlist, has already produced a shortlist because we could probably sit here and name four or five of the people who will be on there. But I actually think – and this goes to what, something Richard said about why there were so many seats left open by Obama, which is that I think the Democrats – this happened with Clinton and Obama – yeah, they're so consumed with getting the racial and gender balances right for everything they do that they're just going to slow down their whole system because they've got to make sure they've got the right number of blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites, and then women, men. It's going to be uh, – and this is just – this is the, the lesson of history for democratic judicial politics is they themselves are the ones who can't get their job done because – They've got to engage in this kind of uh, race and gender spoil system. It's a, I mean, I, and, and at the price, well, not just of slowness, but then at the price of putting on um, really good people on the lower courts. So I think the thing that we saw with Barrett and with Kavanaugh and with Gorsuch is that um, the conservatives who don't, um, you know, play that kind of game, they've managed to seed the lower courts with a large number of highly accomplished and intellectually strong nominees. I think because the Democrats, when they've been in power, have focused more on racial and gender balancing, they don't have as deep a pool of nominees to put on the court. On, and so they've suffered because of it. And I think that's what's going to – I don't see why Biden would be uh, any different. Now the, now, the one thing I would think they will try to do is they will try to uh, mimic – uh, Mitch McConnell and try to figure out ways to accelerate the movement once they're nominated of the judges through the Senate. But I think actually you're going to see the real, uh, I mean, the real bottleneck is going to be in the White House because they're going to have, a, they're just going to be slow uh, picking people. And you're going to see that with the Supreme Court because he's, right, he's already, Biden's already said, well, 50% of the population, all the men, they're not going to be in the running. And then anyone who's not black is not going to be in the running. And so they're going to they, they're just not going to have as deep a pool of people to pick from as if you did, if you had all of the, you know, all the demographic groups, gender groups and the American people available. No, look, I mean, I would make the following observation. Uh, generally, it's thought that women will be liberal and more on the progressive side. Uh, but it just wasn't Amy Barrett. If he decided for some other reason, there are probably a dozen other women whom he's appointed to the appellate courts who would have made perfectly respectable nominees and probably have gone through Alice and I, Joan Lawson, and so forth. I mean, very accomplished people. Uh, and so the interesting feature about all of this is that uh, uh, the federalist groups, the, the conservative groups, have actually been able to get a fairly balanced agenda. It's short on race uh, and on ethnics. But what's happening is, as I look through this campaign, one of the most striking features is you get some anonymous 
Republican nominee for some office, and you have no idea who it is, and you open up the picture, and it's a black um, major sergeant from the Army, male or female. Um, And I think at this particular election, there are more black candidates uh, running on the Republican Party than ever before. And this will then translate into an ability to uh, keep the entire machine going with the kind of racial balance that may be regarded by some people, not I, but by many people as a kind of a political imperative. And uh, the real issue, I think, in this campaign in the election um, is what percentage of the uh, African-American vote will Trump garner? Will it be over 10 or 11 percent? Uh, uh, there's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing, but I, it may well be that the racial politics thing is going to play out in a somewhat different way. Um, and That's I think that point, Richard, I just want to let me sort of follow up on that, which is He's not. Sure. Trump's estimated. I, I find this hard to believe, but, you know, if it's true next week that Trump gets between 15 to 20 percent of the black vote, it's not going to be because he Trump appointed a lot of uh, blacks to the federal courts. Right? Or it's not going to be because he appointed a lot of blacks to the cabinet offices or even thought that way. If, As you say, Richard, it's if he appointed the people who fit his uh, criteria and they happen to have a good uh, balance demographically, then that's great for conservatives, but that's not why they uh, picked people, and it's not why they pick people. And so it's if he gets a high percentage of the black votes, not because of the skin color of his appointments, it's going to just be because of his policies. And those policies are, I think, the two is that, that are important. One, he drove uh, minority unemployment to the lowest it's ever been recorded. And then the second was he, and I don't necessarily agree with him on this second policy, but he um, tried to de- you know, engage in a kind of decriminalization uh, policy to try to reduce sentences, to try to have more people let out of prison for nonviolent offenses. I think, you know, if he had his way, he'd probably decriminalize uh, low-level drug offenses and so on. I think that's why he's getting a larger number of the African-American. Well, I think think you've actually missed the biggest of the issues, which is the law and order question. Um, The law and order question, I think— I think that uh, uh, the Democrats had amnesia at their national convention. Uh, every every uh, participant was a peaceful participant. There were no looters, no rioters. You're not allowed to use that word now. You're supposed to talk about unrest rather than riots and looting. Uh, I do not think that will go well. Uh, there is this constant problem is how many black individuals are killed by police in an unjustified fashion as to how many are killed in black on black crime. And it doesn't take a great genius to figure out that the numbers in the first category are very small and the cases of themselves highly disputed. The number in the second category is very large. And so if you're living in one of these communities and you have somebody who wants to attack the police, wants to defund them, uh, you would live in terror that this is going to happen. Um, I think the sort of the symbolic issue in Chicago was when the mayor, uh, uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, had people threaten her house. She didn't call out a group of social psychologists in order to uh, explain to young children how they ought to be fair on racial matter. She ringed her home with the police. And it turns out you need both of these things, but the funding is not going to be the answer. We have to be properly trained, properly armed, properly dealt with. Trump, in his own, shall we say, uh, less than articulate and tactful way, has supported that program. I think the Democrats have not opposed it, but it's always an afterthought. It's always a single sentence. It's not a sustained campaign situation. And I think that that issue, along with the employment issue, 
are going to be very important. I have said for years, the best transfer program that you could ever design is one that calls for deregulation rather than higher minimum yeah, wage laws and greater yeah. tax subsidies, which kills everybody. And I think Trump, for all of his inarticulate and sometimes offensive forms of speech, has consistently followed that policy. And the question is whether or not it's going to pay off on election day. But if the, the Democratic uh, meltdown from black population is 20 percent. Uh, you will also see something similar happen in the Hispanic population, uh, because remember, Black Lives Matter is not Hispanic Lives Matter. And uh, I think there's going to be an unnecessary exacerbation of tension between groups on that particular issue. And if the Trump, I think he's well behind in the formal polls. I think it's somewhat closer than the polls would say. But if he's going to win, it's going to be on making serious inroads into the Hispanic and black population, which is the ultimate irony uh, in this field as in so many others. I, I want to talk a little about the modicum of a substantive debate that we got in the confirmation hearings. And John, there was an interesting exchange between Amy Klobuchar and Judge Barrett over the issue of super precedents. Klobuchar was trying to push Barrett on whether and why she would consider Roe v. Wade a super precedent, meaning a, a decision that is kind of written in stone and not subject to being revisited. And my question for you is here, to, to what degree a super precedent is a meaningful legal label as opposed to a political one? Because I first recall this term being used by Arlen Specter. And if I recall correctly, he had this very Specter-esque distinction between a super precedent and a super duper precedent. <laughs> but but this concept now seems to have enough currency that it is I mean it's just being taken as a given in the in the course of a Supreme Court hearing. Is that justified? Uh, first if it was a distinction drawn by uh, Arlen Specter, may he rest in peace, Senator from my home state of Pennsylvania. But it should be considered presumptively invalid because, <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, you know, he was a very interesting senator. But, you know, some of the things he said about law, it just did not compute, uh, you know, he, back in the day. But let me let me say this is more of a theory that's been cooked up by law professors. Um, and actually, when Barrett was discussing it, I think Barrett was actually not giving her own view. She was, if you look carefully at what she said, she seemed to be right. describing what other law professors who come up with this theory uh, were saying <laughs> and classifying as super precedents. But I actually don't think she herself said she agreed with it. Um, but the idea is you know, some people say, I'm, uh, you know, some of their friends of mine have written these kind of articles that say, oh, there are some precedents which really could never be overruled. And they give various definitions about how they came up with this. Of course, they always seem to encompass only the precedents that they seem to like, but nothing further. Um, but I, I, there's, I don't think there's any basis in the law for it at all. I mean, I just don't there think is. there's anything in the law that says there's some kind of precedents that are superior to other ones. Now, the, the interesting uh, thing... John, yes. What? yes. Well, I mean, if when John oh. finishes the peroration, I wish to modestly <laughs> so disagree. You know, so I think Troy's distinction is a good one. There may be uh, cases which politically are difficult to overrule, but I don't think they're legally difficult to overrule. So you could say, yes, Brown versus Board of Education is a super precedent. It will never be overruled. Although I wonder how long people used to think that about Plessy versus Ferguson too. I mean, I think Plessy was utterly wrong and Brown was correct. But uh, you know, the, the other case she mentioned was uh, Marbury versus Madison, um, which I actually think is correct. I think Richard doesn't, but I think it was actually 
uh, correct in the original way it was decided, not what it's come to be, which is this kind of, oh, the Supreme Court is the final expositor of the Constitution, which I think is wrong. But again, I can't see uh, the Supreme Court ever saying it won't exercise judicial review ever again. But I don't see why, um, if you think about the constitutional approach to stare decisis, why any precedent uh, legally should be off limits from being re uh, reconsidered to see if it's correct. And if you think it's wrong, then in my view is you should vote to you should vote to overturn it. I don't see any. There's nothing that you know. There's nothing in the Constitution itself which holds certain constitutional questions off limits to reconsideration and others okay. Um, let me answer first of all. I think Barrett did take a position on this, and I think she was very sound about it. So take the contrast between Griswold dealing with the sale of contraceptives and Roe v. Wade. Um, Griswold came at the end. There was one state, Connecticut, which prohibited the sales. It gave a phony rationale that the privacy involved was marital privacy, when the use of contraceptives certainly has a lot of extramarital applications. And nobody sort of objected to it politically and all the stuff that you had was an academic disputation of could you decide Griswold this way if Lochner in fact was the most forbidden case and so forth but there was no public traction to it with Roe as she said the day it came down was the day that the opposition stormed in outrage about what had happened and it has never stopped um, uh, some people say that Roe is the exercise of a woman's right of self-determination others say we could do that before you get pregnant maybe if you get pregnant against your will uh, but essentially it's the murder of innocent life and uh, we regard that. So the difference that you have between the two sides on this is something that's extremely difficult to overcome and you should never want to say politically or otherwise that Roe is a super precedent which is beyond review. It may well be that it's unwise to review it and I'm a little bit less dogmatic than John. I wrote in 1971 which John was still in knickers <laughs> um, uh, that Roe was wrongly decided. I still believe that that was. John, were you alive in 1971. That would have been prescient because Roe wasn't decided in 1971 yet. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, 73. 73. July. It Your was power is a fine year. Oh, so you were six years old at the time. I and I'm Roe was wrong was because I might not have been around if it was, a sale, if it was good law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, uh, there were many legal abortions before then. I, I think she was right about that. And my view is that Marbury and Madison will be never overturned. Martin and Hunter's Lessee will never be overturned. Uh, the fact that, to take another favorite example of mine, is that corporations are regarded as citizens for the purposes of the diversity of jurisdiction, that's never going to be overturned. It was decided in 1855. You're never going to get rid of Article I courts. There are lots of things here that are, I think, like that, but Roe isn't one of them. And the question that Klobuchar put was trying to trap her. And you know, the problem that they had with Amy Barrett, and it's a very simple problem, she's actually smart. And this is a very <laughs> All she had to do was thing. actually be just um, a little bit smarter than the senators, which is not too hard to do. Well, that's, that's a very low bar <laughs> in many cases. But it, look, it's not that. I mean, some of these, look, my general view about politicians, and for example, Amy Klobuchar was my she really? Is there IQ? Yes, and not only that, I'm in her autobiography. What? Really? Talking what did you win? Yes. Well, how did you <laughs> scar her what? for the rest of her life? Well, uh, the well, we I, 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 
<laughs> I will give the short version of it. We were teaching torts and talking about reasonable foreseeability and directness. And the former is a complete intellectual mess. And she decided to endorse that particular position. And I simply got on top of the desk, laid down, and pounded the table with my elbows and did my fists really? and my knees with an abject. You abject mean like a, like I, a yes, barking dog? I did. Like you were on all fours? You were on well, all no, fours I'm, on your I'm, lectern going on about reasonableness and twerk? An law professor. And then she said this. She said that no. this was in the thing. She said he really did mean it because several years later he published an article called Beyond Foreseeability. So look, she had I, done her homework. Look, I, and she I don't blame her for, for remembering you barking like it. a dog about foreseeability and torts. I mean, well, <laughs> maybe I didn't bark. Maybe I baked. I don't know. Whatever verbal Boy, you were you were in the right era, Richard. You would never get tenure today. <laughs> Actually, I mean, well, I mean, this is yes, anti-animal, oh. I suppose. But what, what happens was, I mean, my view about senators, all of them, is their IQ goes up 25 points when they're off stage. <laughs> because what they do is they cannot be candid. They cannot be nuanced. It all gets this lost. play acting. Uh, and so what they have to do is they have to play a role and establish a position. And I don't I don't begrudge them that. It's one of the reasons why I've never entered into politics many, because I would not many, excel at many, that particular many reasons. <laughs> many reasons. <laughs> well, we, well, let's not go into them on this show. So on the rest of it, you know, I think that John and I have had this. He's closer to Thomas on the rigidity of his disapproval of stare decisis. I tend to be on the other side. The interesting feature about this is all the living constitutionalists who want to talk about how we need oh, to have yeah, change yeah. and all of the originalists on the other side, what they're doing is they're talking about cases like Wickard and Filburn and the extension of the Congress. Uh, actually, I would even go farther than you, Richard. They were the people who were, and I, I'm not saying Barrett herself has a clear view, although she did write a whole arc about stare decisis, but uh, the Democrats themselves were utterly unprincipled about respect for precedent. So, oh yeah, uh, Roe versus Wade is some kind of super precedent, but we got to overturn Citizens United because you know corporations shouldn't have free speech, right? And we got to overturn Shelby County well, because it's an outrageous restriction on the 1965 civil rights. I mean, it was it was completely results oriented in terms of what precedents were liked or disliked by the Democrats. There was no. This is not the claim like uh, your you claim, though, that you should just strip the precedent all the time unless you should, there's really strong no, reasons I mean, to overturn it. It was just that I think they revealed themselves to be really outcome-oriented in how they want to interpret the Constitution. Well, it nothing mean, to do with respect for precedent at all. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that the outrage that was expressed with respect to Shelby County was, was completely yeah. disproportionate. Um, the idea that somehow or other you keep the superintendents of southern states forever. and of northern yeah, states forever. the same way with forever. The, forever, because it turns out Alaska was on that list. And in Shelby County, it turns out you have a new agency created after the 64 period. And the history of legacy of segregation covers a brand new board in which there's no signs of irregularity. I thought that they they were somewhat off the wall on all of those cases. Uh, if you wanted to talk about another non-super precedent, um, Bowers and Hardwick came down, and from the day it came down, it was subject to a vicious attack. And it lasted about 17 years until Lawrence in 2000. 
three. Um, and I think it's perfectly okay. Uh, I didn't regard Bowers as a super president, and I don't regard Roe v. Wade as a super president. Um, I do not know to this day, if I were on the court, whether I would or would not overrule it. Um, I tend to be reluctant to do so, but I'm not beyond persuasion. I, uh, you, you, you don't have to persuade no, no, just, me, John. I think you have a consistent theory of precedent. I, I would give it less respect. Barrett missed a chance in the hearings, to, to go back to Troy's question, to simply say, oh, Senator Klobuchar, which precedents are the ones that I'm supposed to get rid of and which ones am I supposed to keep? Because in the hearings, in the no, hearings you ask I heard you guys Senate. ask for the overruling or several precedents. I can't tell which ones are which from your own point of view. John, <laughs> John you're not going to be a you're not going to be a voice coach. Let me let me John, I, I want to tie together a, a couple of threads here, the Roe v. Wade thread and the one you just mentioned about outcomes and outcomes orientation, because I don't think I'm being excessively partisan to note that the parties talk about judicial issues in really contrasting ways. Republicans are generally trying to promote their judges on the basis of philosophy. Democrats usually more on the outcomes. So you can understand why the attacks on Barrett from the yeah, left just about outcomes. centered on policy arguments. Well, and the is, two big ones yeah, oh, go ahead. were ab abortion, mm. which they ended up soft-pedaling a bit because I think everyone realized how much of a problem Dianne Feinstein created for them during yes, Barrett's appellate confirmation. And, and the big one they leaned into was Obamacare because yeah. there's this ACA case up before the court right now. So yeah, score oh, this God. for me on a scale of real concern to cynical politicking, how likely is a Supreme Court with Justice Barrett on it to actually overturn Roe or the ACA? Uh, I think it's a matter of time. So I could see the court eventually overturning Roe, but it would take year. It'll take years, uh, and it would be a gradual, uh, really gradual uh, uh, acceptance of state greater state restrictions on the right to abortion, and it would only be after many many years before you actually got a case. So, and so think about it uh, from the time when Reagan took office till the time of Casey, you know, the court that the case that upheld Roe versus Wade, you had oh, about 12 years of Supreme Court cases allowing more and more state restriction on abortion. I think it would take a similar amount of time before you really squarely faced Roe again. I, you know, in terms of Obamacare, that's the thing, Obamacare, the precedent there, it's, I mean, really, really, I mean, this is I couldn't believe that they spent when they spent this much time on this in the hearings. I already knew the Democrats had thrown in the towel and weren't really trying to stop Amy Coney Barrett because they spent most of the, the entire first day of the hearings on the question of severability. Severability is not even really a constitutional issue. It's it's a, it is like not even a one percent in terms of how important an issue it is compared to the things that Barrett will have to decide in the future, as you say. Troy, like Roe versus Wade. So what I expect will happen, I think Barrett gets to the court. If Obamacare comes up, uh, I don't think that the court would hold it severable. I mean, non-severable for, for two reasons. One, in the first Obamacare case in 2012, in the Sibelius versus NFIB, the court already held that anything that gets struck down out of Obamacare is severable. In the meantime, several of the conservative justices have themselves cast doubt on the idea that if you find one provision unconstitutional, you then have the right to strike everything else in the law down because – and this is Justice Thomas and Gorsuch 
because that's not true to Marbury versus Madison, which just says if there's a conflict between a statutory provision and a constitutional provision, you're just choosing between the plaintiff and the defendant. You're not like exercising complete review over the whole law, especially the 99% of the law that's not before you. So I don't think I don't think there's really maybe there's a vote or two on the court that would say now nowadays that the law has to be struck down in toto. I just, but I just don't see it now. I, I, I don't think it even comes close. It's not close. It's going to be nine nothing. Um, uh, I, I spent a lot of time on the Obamacare case with my friend Mario Loyola. Actually, wrote a fairly learned brief on severance and so forth. Uh, uh, and the first thing is, well, if you strike down the whole statute, if you strike down the Biologic Protection and Composition and Innovation Act dealing with biologics. Nobody wants to touch that. But more importantly, just look at it substantively. The biggest objection that you had to the Commerce Clause power was that the uh, individual mandated required you to enter into commerce, and this was not simply regulating commerce. Uh, you can make exactly the same argument that a fine uh, for not taking out health insurance is not a tax, it's a fine, but Robert Smith's that. But once you get rid of the mandate, then the Commerce Clause is full justification under Wicked and Philbin for everything that happened. Um, and remember, the mandate was the way they upheld the mandate under the tax after failing under the Commerce Clause. The mandate was a thorn in everybody's side. If it's gone, then the rest of the statute is even stronger than it was before. Yeah, could I was just can I make one point there? It's like suppose they struck down the mandate now as the uh, district judge and the Fifth Circuit did. It doesn't matter because the main parts of Obamacare that have you know produced this you know bizarre healthcare system we now have to live with aren't because of the individual mandate at all. It's because of the massive expansion in federal spending and it's because of federal regulation of what's got to be an insurance policy and and the creation of these federal health exchanges and or the setting of prices for most medical procedures, all that would be untouched by the individual mandate. Right? So all the main features of Obamacare, which I think are really screwing up our health care system, are still going to be intact no matter what happens with a mandate. Can I ask you guys Troy, uh, uh, further discussion? I want to ask you one more question on Barrett before we move, move on. And Richard, I'll start with you, but I open this to either of you because maybe it's too esoteric to answer. Do, oh, I do love we that. know what Justice Barrett's judicial quirks are? By, by which I mean, Kennedy's quirk was that he had a soft spot for the gay rights issue. Robert's quirk is that he's political and he'll pull his punches if he thinks the court is improperly getting into the driver's seat on something. Gorsuch's quirk is that he'll occasionally give a big chunk of the country back to the Indians. <laughs> do, do we know anything about Amy Coney Barrett's idiosyncrasies? Yeah, quirk is, quirk is too mealy mouth the word. You mean defect. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I mean, look, I think in effect, um, and is that she is, for my taste, much too soft on property rights. Um, she is very much a part of the judicial restraint situation, and also, if you read her academic writing, uh, she does much more than I do. The view that there's a lot more ambiguity in statutes than you could otherwise imagine, and so that's going to create a culture of deference either on constitutional issues or on administrative law issues. Uh, this is a really important philosophical.
philosophical debate, actually, because nobody can maintain a system of scrutiny if you believe that the language that you're trying to protect or to understand is, is opaque and uncertain and indefinite. And that's her philosophical preference, and mine is exactly in the opposite way. Uh, the way in which I like to put it is, yes, there are all sorts of difficult cases, but language has worked quite well. And the thing that you discover most about language is that most of the people who use it have no idea of the rules that govern it, and they're perfectly fine. So I'm going to ask both you and John the following question, which I ask to everybody else. And if you can't, if you can't give me the right answer, I will not be surprised, but you've never violated this rule. Do you have, this is the question, a passive transformation of an intransitive verb? I, I don't know what that means, but it sounds like it requires radiation treatment. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I, what do you I, think I, about Are you talking that? about grammar? We're, I thought we are talking about Barrett. What yeah. the hell is this got to do with Barrett? There's no such thing as a passive. There can't be a passive tense of an intransitive verb. Give me an example of an intransitive verb. It doesn't have active or passive because it doesn't do anything. Oh, John, John, why are you celebrating your ignorance? (laughs) What's the word you have in mind? I want to know. The word to go as a word to push. You cannot have a passive transformation of an intransitive verb, which is a change of place or location. You could only have a passive transformation if there's an application of force. I have been goad is not English. I have been pushed is perfectly good English. And you did not know that rule. No, no, Troy did not that. know that trans- rule. And you, uh, an intransitive verb yeah, you can't didn't have know a passive tense. It's impossible. No, yeah, it's not a tense. I mean, a voice, Don. Yeah, Let's because, yeah, because you don't have it. It's not possible. It turns out, no, it's, it's because essentially you don't have <laughs> Yeah, I don't understand what this has But let me this, say, this, this actually, this, so if, no, what it if, has if to this, do with if this thought never crosses Barrett's Ooh. mind, then I will be much more reassured about how she'll do as a justice. But let me, can I just answer the question? Because I just want to agree with you, Richard. Let me let me just agree with you. I think you are right about the foible is that uh, Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett, I bet, will look uh, quite dimly at natural rights and uh, economic liberty. And that's because uh, the, even though you, 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 this goes to choice question about what were Democrats really asking about, Democrats don't really uh, in the hearings were asking about outcomes. They weren't really work asking her about originalism, how she would do it. But there are actually important differences in the originalism camp. And you could say, you know, right now they're kind of expressed as a difference between Scalia and Thomas. And she's much closer to the Scalia side. If the Scalia side is like the Bork side of the debate, um, it's a wholly positivist approach in the sense that there's nothing uh, as to individual rights other than what uh, has been put down in writing through the constitutional processes or through congressional processes. So therefore, there are no economic liberties anymore of a constitutional nature. There are no fundamental natural law rights that pre-exist the Constitution, although I might add that Scalia had to rely on that theory in his Second Amendment case, uh, in his Second Amendment article uh, opinion. But I don't think, but I think generally the Scalia-Bork side of things don't uh, don't believe in such, right? Bork famously said the Ninth Amendment, which refers to unenumerated rights, was an inkblot. It had no meaning. An and so Thomas, on the other hand, who I think Gorsuch is closer to in the voting, um, I think Alito might be a little closer to is this idea that there are unenumerated natural rights that pre-exist and are independent of the Constitution. And the air, the gray area where we've ignored that in our K-12 
case law at the Supreme Court has Property been right. the economic market, the economic liberty side. And so I believe I saw you. You guys would probably know this. I just read it. I didn't see it. But I believe that Justice Barrett actually did go out of her way during the confirmation hearings to make the point that the Declaration of Independence is not law. Right. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah. I mean, but all, yeah. Let me just answer the question in a slightly different way. I believe so. Well, she's right, uh, but all men are created equal, I suppose. But I, I put it in a slightly different fashion, and this is not unique to her. It covers virtually all the Supreme Court justices, with the possible exception of Gorsuch. None of them are experienced private law litigators. They are not used to common law. They don't teach common law subjects, contracts, Yeah, property. that should be disqualifying, actually, I think, for this. To teach it or not to teach it. <laughs> Well, well, I mean, I why know. should they have that experience? That's not before them. They're fed, they're, they're, they do no, federal they, law. They, why should we put any common law lawyers on the court? They because run amok. No, because you have to figure out what freedom of speech is in order to protect it. You have to know what private property is. If you don't know what a contract is, if you don't know what impairment is, you can't do it. Uh, the Constitution. You know, um, Richard, you know who did have that background who was on the court? Kennedy and O'Connor and Powell. They were all disasters no, because no. they thought the federal law was like no, the common no, no. law, and they tried to balance everything and no. make up new rules. No, no, they no, were no, disasters, no. Richard. John, you, they may or may not be disasters, but a common law rule is a system of bright line rules in large numbers of areas. And the, the question about this is, do you understand how they work? And so, for example, you want to take securities law and you have to know about the rules dealing with non-disclosure, material misrepresentations and the like. And they go back and some of them actually try to figure out what the private law cases are and they tend to mess them up uh, because essentially securities law is an extension by other means of the common law of misrepresentation. Oh, Richard, this is your effort to turn every area of law into tort law, which in reality is your effort to turn everything into Roman law, which is your effort to <laughs> actually <laughs> concentrate people no, call power right. into the cleverest lawyers. God it's help no us if that ever John. Look what happened to the Roman Empire. You're being anti-intellectual, John. I am being uh, but I'm saying when it comes to judges. I, I, let me just explain it one step further. I'm getting very frustrated. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about telling them to do this. They read these opinions and they get them wrong. It's not as though I'm trying to say get something there that they don't want to look at. It's something that they are looking at and they don't understand, which is a very different problem on how it is that you start to deal with this. Materiality is a securities law term. It's a term of the private law of misrepresentation. They go back and forth, but they don't have a really strong sense because none of them have talked to practice in this particular area. And I actually believe that that is the single greatest intellectual deficit that we see on the Supreme Court today. New topic. I want to talk a little about the court's role in the election. So uh, hopefully this will all be speculation and we'll have a clear enough sense of the winner that this doesn't all end up with the judicial branch, but we're all on eggshells over this. Uh, John, there are all these debates over what kind of allowances should be made for vote counts, given how much of this election is being done by mail. We've had the court recently allow for bigger windows post-election day for mail-in ballots to be counted in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, but they had a decision to go the opposite way for the count in Wisconsin. Uh, so explain, just to start off, how do those cases go in opposite directions? And then are, are there coherent principles that we can deduce from these decisions about how the court is going to handle any potential challenges on vote counts? Uh, so the answer is 
No, there aren't really important distinctions between the cases that have gone one way or the other, other than the vote of Chief Justice Roberts. And I think it's classic. Oh, God yeah, help us. And it's a classic Chief Justice Roberts uh, case of I can find a distinction, even if it doesn't make sense, between one kind of case and another kind of case. And that's what he's doing here. So, um, but there's an important uh, sort of central constitutional question here, which the court was going to decide in the Bush versus Gore case and then veered off at the last minute to embrace, I think, the logic that it did in the final uh, opinion, which was not the great, I think, which was a very weak opinion. But here's, so here goes. So uh, the basic question is, under the Constitution, uh, state legislatures have the uh, authority to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections. That's one provision. And then another provision says the state legislatures decide on the, the uh, selection of presidential electors. So the federal issue, I think, which is common to all these cases, is when a state court says the pandemic or the bad postal service or whatever circumstance justifies changing the due date for ballots, has the state court violated, uh, I'm sorry, has the court, federal or state, that's changed the deadline, violated the Constitution's vesting of that power in the state legislature? So the cases have come out this way. When it's been a federal court that has done it, the Supreme Court has either overruled or upheld an appellate court's overruling of that and requiring deference to the state legislature. However, when it's a state court, that changes the deadline. Then Chief Justice Roberts votes with the three liberals and refuses to allow review. The principle, the constitutional question is the same in both sets of cases. And Roberts even wrote a very lame, I thought utterly lame uh, concurrence explaining that his distinction was, well, state courts involve different questions than federal courts. State courts might be deciding on state law rather than federal law. He really reminds me of sometimes a first-year law student who's very clever at coming up with <laughs> distinctions, but without really having it attached to any real principles. There's always students like that who are very clever at this, but the, the, the ones who are deeper are the ones who there's actually an important principle that's expressed in the distinction. And I think Roberts has completely missed it. I also think he's losing control of his court over this because if you look at the dissents that have been issued in these state court decisions, uh, you get to uh, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh clearly see that the constitutional issue is there in both cases. And I think what's going to happen when Barrett gets there, and I don't blame her for not getting involved on her first day in the Supreme Court, but she's going to have to decide whether she goes along with the chief because he can come up with a clever distinction, or if she's going to vote with the other four. And look, if she says she has Justice Scalia as her role model and mentor, Scalia agreed with this view back in Bush versus Gore that state legislatures have to have the final say over elections, not state courts. Uh, and that was, and that actually was the better ground, I think, on which to stop the Florida courts and Bush versus yeah. war from continuing the recounts. Richard, I, I want to ask you a very specific question on this, but the answer is going to allow you to have the run of the entire field on this topic. Okay, I'll, I'll run out the show. <laughs> and I'm going to try to He's be getting excited. Already. I'm going to try to be careful to ask this question without too much prejudice. But so a weird thing has happened in relationship to Chief Justice Roberts, which is that 15 years or whatever it is after his confirmation, Everyone left and right has kind of come to take as read 
that he's not actually in the business of calling balls and strikes, or at least if he is, he's actively fiddling with the strike zone. And as I mentioned earlier, we all kind of know now that there are political considerations in his head on a lot of decisions, and you can certainly imagine how they would loom large in these kinds of cases. So I'm really interested in the role that you think the chief justice might play in any litigation around the election. And maybe the backdoor way of asking this question is how would Bush v. Gore have gone down with a Chief Justice John Roberts? Uh, this case was decided before he was on the court. Uh, I think he would have voted uh, with the uh, the five majority. I don't think he would have voted with the three who wanted it to rest on the explicit provision, which says that it is the state legislatures that determine how this goes. If they pick the secretary of state in order to count the chads, you do not override that. When that decision actually came up in the Florida court, it was like the Pennsylvania court. It was 4-3. It wasn't as though it was unanimous. There was a lot of disagreement on that. I do not think that he would have taken the the tougher line. I think he would have tried the equal protection line, which has been ridiculed by everybody on all sides of the aisle as being utterly unprincipled. Look, I, I you know, I'm very loath to impose motives to people. I'm much better at reading opinions and telling you what I think they're right or wrong. Uh, the reason why they still- Wait, wait, wait. What about your PhD in cynicism? <laughs> well, Come that, on, man. That, Come that on. To you, John. Come on. Um, but- the, Go back. It's pretty clear if you look at the situation, the NFIB case, which was Obamacare, it was a very bad opinion. I mean, his objection that this was not a regulation of commerce applies to the fact that it also wasn't a tax. Uh, If I can tax you for not eating, for not taking out insurance, then I could tax you for not eating broccoli and the whole tax system is crazy. There has to be a transactional wealth to which the tax agenda. So he makes a mistake. Then he gets to King B. Burwell and on the mandate. And again, all of a sudden, he starts to say that state and federal are synonymous because uh, the purpose is uniform in the two cases. He ignores the political motivation for writing it that way, which was quite conscious, namely that we wanted the states to establish these exchanges. And if they established them, they would get all these tax benefits. If they didn't establish it, they wouldn't. He doesn't care about that because in his view, it's aesthetically crazy to have this situation disagreeing. And then what he does is he says, my views are so strong that I'm not even going to allow Chevron deference to carry there. It's very much ad hoc. And the same thing is true in this particular case. John is actually for once right <laughs> what? when he says that the two questions identical. Now, there are two ambiguities, I think, that I would mention, but I don't think they're decisive. One of them is that there's always the question of the extent to which every congressional power is going to be subject to some constitutional constraint, and the 1787 Constitution might be modified by something, but it's certainly not going to be modified by the Equal Protection Clause, which only binds the state and not the federal government. And in addition to that, I think it's very clear that Every one of these state commissions took into account COVID to make adjustments. So it is completely disingenuous to say, well, since they weren't responsible, do it always. Uh, the Kagan response, I thought, was particularly uh, regretful. She says, well, I mean, we don't know whether they're valid ballots until we look at uh, whether we count them or not so we could count them. Uh, it is in every proxy examination that you have in corporate law and in similar subject. These deadlines really matter. There's no reason why they can't matter. People could make adjustments before without gumming up the process in the way that goes afterwards. I think, in effect, the chief justice was too clever by half, and that's going to cost him a lot of respect. And if you now look at the 6-3 majority, 
He is the furthest left of the six that are going to go there. Uh, so that the median justice, if I had to pick it, would be either Barrett or Kavanaugh. One of the two of them. Can I just I... make one, just one word point about with sure. Richard is that is that not only is he monkeying around and trying to play politics as an amateur in a Washington where there are many more apt. I mean, able politicians than him, but he's going completely against his own views on the merits because there's this case, very interesting case called uh, out of Arizona a few years ago about whether a state, whether Arizona could transfer its authority over redistricting, which in the Constitution also is given to state yes. legislatures and give it to some other body because of uh, an initiative that required that, and which is what we do in California, too. And so Ron, these are independent yeah. commissions that do. The yeah, work. yeah. I think we might have even talked yeah. about on the show back when the opinion came out. And Roberts wrote what I thought was one of his best opinions ever. He wrote a dissent, five, four case. And he said, that makes no sense, because when the Constitution says state legislatures, as opposed to state or state governors or state judiciaries, it means state legislatures. And you can't take the power away from those legislatures and give them to some other branch of government in the state. Because that would violate the federal constitution. It's so. I mean, if that, if he believes that, and he, I think he was correct there. He actually went through and counted up that the constitution uses state legislature something like seventeen different times. And he said that means that they wanted the state legislature alone to have that federal duty, and that the state itself couldn't monkey around with its own constitution and mix and match the powers to say, oh, for. Well, when the Constitution says state legislatures, we're gonna we're gonna mean oh the legislature and the governor, or the legislature and the judiciary, or the initiative. Or I think he was completely right. So he's effectively now voting against what he knows is an incorrect view when he's voting to deny all of these cases coming out of let's see, vote against North Carolina, and he voted against Pennsylvania, but he voted in favor of hearing from Wisconsin. But he knows better because we know he knows because he's written it himself. I would actually, you know, what I think would be really great is if one of the dissenters just took his dissent in Arizona and just replaced redistricting with the word presidential electors and just republish the whole thing verbatim. <laughs> Look, um, uh, the, the hour is drawing yeah. now. I, I think that there is no need to beat up on him any further. Yeah. What clearly has happened. Oh, I think we should devote a whole the, episode of the show to this sooner. Well, I, 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 I don't like pummeling people who are not there to defend themselves. I mean, I have many disagreements with him on large numbers of issues. I mean, uh, for example, the one that bothers me the most is maybe you think that Lochner is wrong, but the thought that it's somehow the cut of the same cloth as Plessy v. Ferguson or Dred Scott strikes me as utterly mad. Um, one is a question of do you really think that legislatures or courts should decide these questions? The other is the simple issue that no matter who decides it, it's evil from top to bottom, and you ought to distinguish that. Uh, I think going forward, those cases will not come up. And I think what happens is the most important situation is the chief justice is no longer the median vote. And that will change this. As uh, There was a piece by James Toronto in the Wall Street Journal saying yeah, that was if he piece. wants to go over with the four liberals on these things, it was a nice piece. He said, now Clarence Thomas is going to determine who gets to write what opinions. Uh, it may well be that Roberts will decide to stay with the Marty, with the majority, write an opinion which he thinks is a little bit less sweeping in order to prevent that from happening. But these dynamics will certainly change. Actually, um, if you believe in originalism and you're conservative, you want to kick Roberts out of the club as fast as possible so that <laughs> Thomas can become the I, opinion I assigner and main writer of the cases. Because that would lead to a profound different 
kind of constitutional. I can't wait for that to happen. It's not not going to happen. But anyhow, we're we're running out of time, and so I I have one quick question. uh, One more on this that I want to serve up to you, John, because I actually asked Richard this on his other podcast. Richard has (laughs) other podcasts without me. Uh, He's got he's he's got other podcasts without me, John. It's an empire. How did this happen? Uh, So I'll give you I'll give you this one quick question, and then we've got a little after dinner minute here at the end. So (laughs) like in like in the Monty Python movie, it causes all to explode. (laughs) But good. So after. Justice Barrett was confirmed. There were people who said that she should have skipped the White House ceremony afterwards, that given the terms of her confirmation, given that there's an elevated chance that issues related to the election will come before the court, that she should have been doing everything in her power to put daylight between herself and the president. There is now in a similar vein a suggestion in some quarters that she should recuse herself from any cases involving the outcome of the election. What's your reaction to that? First of all, I think that's uh, the first suggestion is just silly. I mean, this is, again, uh, an effort to politicize the court. I mean, of course, justices have been had ceremonies with presidents after the confirmation uh, to celebrate. Uh, And it's not just been uh, Barrett or Kavanaugh. It's been from both parties. And it goes goes back a long time. And I I think that's sort of that's just silly, although it shows, I think, that uh, these People who claim that they uh, want the court to be there as uh, you know the last line of defense for minority rights. These are now the people who are hell bent to destroy the leg- legitimacy of the court. And this on the, the second point, whether she should recuse herself. Um, I think that, well, let me put it this way: the standard that the court has announced for state judges recusing themselves goes so far and is, I think, clearly wrong that it could include. Barrett and the judges, because it's just based on the appearance of impropriety, the appearance of political influence. This was a West Virginia case about a guy who gave millions of dollars to the reelection of a judge who then voted um, on his side in a major case involving, I think, West Virginia coal interests, without any showing that the contributions had actually caused that judge to engage in some kind of quid pro quo. I think that standard's wrong. And I think rather the standard that she should use is the one that Justice Scalia used when he was um, sitting on a case involving Vice President Cheney, even though he'd gone on a hunting trip with Cheney. I I mean, clearly Cheney likes Scalia because he didn't shoot him in the face like his other hunting companions, right? (laughs) (laughs) So he showed him excessive favoritism and expected to be replaced. But, you know, Justice Scalia said, look, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on the case in Cheney's official capacity. And I have no bias there. And and he made a good point. Like, you know, if you uh, start implying that uh, you should recuse yourself because you might have had some personal contact with the other person, then what's the stopping point? So he said, you got to, there's just no ground for, and I think that standard means there's no ground for recusal here. If there were, then Justice Kagan certainly should have recused herself from the Obamacare case. I mean, she was the Solicitor General when that law went through, and actually she was consulted about his constitutionality. Or Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer should not have sat on any of the cases arising out of the Clinton impeachment and Clinton investigation because he, so I 
you know, it's a question really is can you sit in an unbiased way in judgment on the office, on the, the actions of the office, not whether you have some relationship with the person personally? I'm going to give a very short answer. Um, if you allow it in this case, then anytime a Republican administration or a Trump statute's an issue, presumably you're going to have to worry about it as well. I think you have to presume the integrity. I think if it turns out that there's somebody who made a large political contribution, you should recuse yourself. Uh, that's not what it is here. So I think, in effect, she the only thing that she should recuse herself from are matters in which she has something to do on lower courts um, or was otherwise involved. But that's a relatively narrow class. Um, when Thurgood Marshall went on the court, um, Second Circuit, I think he said, I'm not going to deal with any double NAACP cases for three years and then it's over. And I think something like that's appropriate. So uh, there we are. Thank you, guys. I've got to run. John, are we over? Well, well, you are now, Richard. There's no way for me to come back from that. Are we still have five right, minutes? You just go ahead and I'll keep. No, no. We've been going for an hour and five minutes. All right, gentlemen. That's going to have to do it. Uh, let's hope the next episode isn't an emergency episode. But if it is, we'll be ready. Thanks as ever to the two of you, our producer, Scott Emmergut, all our great listeners, and most of our merely average ones. Remember to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org. All right. I have now got to go to dinner. Uh, see, I knew we had some kind of hard stop. Uh, oh, we did about an hour. We need to have a, you know, we got to have another one after the election. Oh, no, we did more than an hour because John was interrupted. We came back. In.